Sunday. So good to see you all this morning. Um, hey, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 17. So, um, yeah, so this is what happened. <laughs> okay, so uh, we, uh, the anticipation was, the plan was to, um, as we have done over, over, you know, a handful to take all of Genesis chapter 17 and to, uh, to unpack it last week. Well, if you were here last week, um, or just the fact that you're now surmising that I'm asking you to turn to Genesis 17, we didn't finish it. Okay, so um, we're actually in uh, part two of our Almighty God. Um, that's where we're going to be, Genesis 17. So for those of you who thought uh, like Josh had just lost it, right? Wait, we read all of Genesis 17 last week. Why are we doing this again? He was right. He was right. We're doing Genesis 17 again this week, and we're going to be looking um, kind of at the second part of what we had talked about last week. So uh, last week, we spent a lot of time focusing in on, um, on, on verse like one, right? Like one and um, verse one and, and two, um, the Lord identifying himself to, um, to Abraham in this really, in this really unique um, and incredible way. I mean, we're talking like unprecedented up until this point outside of like the garden, right? We're talking about something that is altogether new um, and, and beautiful. And that's where we were last week. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, reviewing uh, where we were last week because it does fit like so closely with where we are um, this week. But big picture, we're continuing the expansion of this story of beginnings, Right, God's um, God's God's beautiful creation marred by sin and death. Right, and the beginnings of this story to bring about the redemption of all things, to make all sad things untrue, to rescue uh, the world, and to rescue sinners through Christ Jesus. This is the plan, the seed of the woman in Genesis uh, chapter three, verse fifteen. And so we're continuing to see the story expand. Right, it's almost like a uh, like a like a triangle, right? Like we've got this big part up up here, right? This is um, what we are perhaps maybe most familiar with, which is the whole story. Maybe not all the details, but but kind of like the beginning and the end, right? This is maybe what we're most familiar with. Now we're we're narrowing it in, right? We're bringing it down to a point, and we're watching it come out from that. That's what we're doing. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing. We're we're narrowing it in to this first book. And then we're seeing it expand out. And so we are in the midst of the expansion. And we're very, like, early in the story. We're very young in the expansion. But it's happening. It's happening nonetheless. God has promised to rescue his people through the seed of the woman. And we are now seeing this this happen. So this is where we are. Last week, we looked at Genesis 17, part 1. And we explored the following question. This is where we were last week. Just to catch us all up. Uh, how do the attributes of God shape the way that we live? How do the attributes of God shape the way that we live? We spent, like I've already stated, a lot of time looking at verse 1 and this specific characteristic, right? This attribute of the Lord that he provides to Abraham. In verse 1, God identifies himself as almighty. And we connected this with the theological term, what? Who was here last week? Who remembers? Ben. Omniscience, yeah, right? We connected it with this theological term, uh, omniscience, right? Um, Centering on 
three subpoints, right? The first one was this, that God's omniscience ensures the success of his mission, right? Encouraging news for the people of God now employed by God to be a part of his mission. Uh, the first point, right? Subpoint from last week, that the mission of God is sure. Why? Well, because his nature ensures that it is sure, right? That it will be accomplished, that it will be fulfilled. Now, why is that such good news? Well, because you and I are now employed to be a part of this work, right? Like he calls us into this work. He employs us and he equips us as his people to be about living mission, being on mission, right? And so it's it's important and it's um it's good that we can rest on the assuredness of God's word, right? In the accomplishing of his mission. God chooses to emphasize his supremacy and his power here in verse one, so that we might grasp a God-informed perspective of who he is. Now, I want us to talk about this for just a moment. Remember, we're connecting back to last week, which was intended to be a one week. And so we've got to do some work to connect back. Otherwise, this is going to seem really disconnected. Okay, and so um, God choosing to emphasize his supremacy and his power. Right? Why does he um, Why does he do this? That we might have a God-informed perspective of who he is. I'm reading a book right now called Shoe Dog. Uh, and it's by the creator of Nike, whose name is Phil Knight. And it's really super interesting. Anyone read this book or seen this book? So you have it in your library. Yes, one. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? Um, it's, it's a super interesting book. Um, and I think as I've been reading through that and I've been just considering what we've seen from Genesis chapter 17 and the Lord's introducing himself or expanding Abram's understanding of who he is on his own terms, there have been some neat like connections, I think, that I've, I've, I've considered in light of what I'm reading in both of these places. So um, here's what I mean. Uh, and they, we can really connect this outside of Phil Knight and Shoe Dog and Nike or whatever. Like it can just be kind of any any like biography or memoir, right? In which we're being introduced to an individual and they are telling us about themselves, right? So here's the deal. Like I am a, I'm a, I'm a Nike guy. I like Nikes. Okay, but it's just kind of where I am. And so um, I think about what I observe from Nike, right? From like their design and what um, kind of the way that they, uh, they do press and like the way they present things. Like there's just a super interesting way that they all go about this. Now, interestingly enough, I think that there are some things that I can infer about Nike from observing their shoes, right? That they um, are creative, and they have a lot of money. <laughs> like I can, I can get these things by just observing a pair of, of Nikes. But one thing that's been super interesting in this whole process is uh, that being able to come in and, and around Phil Knight's memoir, I'm able to learn some things about him and about Nike that are altogether different that I can't and, and really infer from just observing an ad or observing a shoe, right? Like that there's something else there. Do, you, do we get what I'm saying here? Right? We, can, we can learn some things, right? I can, I can look out into the world. I can observe creation and I can learn some things about God. Right. But one thing that's so interesting and so beautiful is that we're not left to go. All right, let's observe nature and let's just infer what we will about its creator. We have a God who speaks to us. Right. Who who comes to us, who speaks.
speaks specific um, things about himself. He draws us in and then he shares with us who he is. We don't have to rely on our best guess as to who he is. We don't have to read the tea leaves or make assumptions, which would indeed be a truly concerning practice given all that is at stake here, right? And that would be a, that would be a, a problem. God reveals himself. He reveals himself through his word, and then he reveals himself through his son. And finally now, God reveals himself through his people, right? Like we are able to grow in a deeper understanding of who God is and what he cares about, what he values by the way that transformed people now live their lives. Does that make sense? Are we getting this? All right, so so it's, it's, it's extremely important that we understand what's going on in Genesis 17, verse 1. God, uh, God comforts his people right through his revelation. And he comforts his people through his word. A, a comfort that perhaps begins with a degree of fear, right? As there is this realization that God is holy and that we are not. This is an idea that we've unpacked over previous weeks. This fear doesn't necessarily go away. It remains as a healthy fear, right? Accompanied by comfort, as we've already established. And a comfort that captures our plans, This is the way that we apply these theological truths. So what did this look like in terms of our time together last week? That God's mission is secure, right? That it is sure that our mission oftentimes is not if we're living it on our own terms and according to what we deem to be most appropriate. Well, we hold loosely our daily aim. That's what we said last week. Right, if God's mission is sure, then our desire then is to, is to see like our mission, our daily aim, conform to what God would have for us. But that we would live as he would desire his people to live. That we would adopt his aim, that we would adopt his mission for our lives. That way we don't ever come to the end of any day and go, well, uh, that was a failure, <laughs> right? Which is um, maybe a place that you've been. I know it's certainly a place that I've been. That was a waste. Like, what happened to today? What happened to Monday? Monday, there was this plan, and then this whole plan just just blew up before 7.30, right? We're familiar with this. The goal, then, is to conform our aim to the aim of the Lord. We say things like what the psalmist says. If the Lord wills, amen, let's do that. We adopt the interest of the Lord as our primary focus. What is God interested in? What's God interested in? Well, here are a few things. God is interested in his glory. So when we talk about daily aim, like the, 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 the glory of the Lord right, being displayed in us and, and through us, that's a desire. What does that do? Well, it totally transforms the way that we deal with calamity, doesn't it? Heartache, trouble, trial. Why? Well, because we're drawn back into this rest and reliance on the Lord, which by, uh, by its, its very practice will what? It'll glorify him. Right? It'll glorify the Lord. And so we say the glory of the Lord being realized in my life and in my family and spheres of influence, my friend groups and my, my job, my hobbies, the way that I cope you know, and rely, live a life of, of, of humility. 
God is interested in this. And so we ought to be a people interested in this. God's glory. What else? Well, mission, people, justice. These are things that the Lord is, is interested in, right? That he cares about. And therefore, we say God's glory, mission, people, justice, stellar. Let's adopt this as our interests, right? Let's, let's adopt the interests of the Lord as our ultimate interests in life. We now, having been rescued through faithful obedience and the sacrifice of Jesus, through the hope of his resurrection, see the world through the eyes of our sovereign king. This is how we observe the world. This is how we see circumstances. This is the way we see people. This is the way that we see, um, we see everything. That's where we started. No wonder we didn't get through last week. Right, in addition to the success of the mission of God, we talked about um, God doing exactly as he desires and, and possessing power that supersedes all other powers. These are truths that we unpacked last week as we considered the attributes of God and they're shaping the way that we live our lives. He possesses a power that supersedes all other powers in heaven and on earth, under the earth. One very well-known pastor said it like this. This is so good. He says, the omniscience of God, his almightiness, means refuge for the people of God. Right? This, this attribute, this, this nature of God means refuge for the people of God. It means confidence in God to do as he pleases, even when we are incapable of fully grasping his ways. The song that we sang, I wish that we could, can we just sing it every week, right? Um, God, I trust in you. I don't know where you were as we're singing that song, but like I'm being confronted with challenges in that, right? That should be a difficult, that should be somewhat difficult for us, you know? Not because the Lord is untrustworthy, but because we recognize in this confession and this desire that it so oftentimes doesn't mirror our confessions and our desires. Does that make sense? It's challenging. We're challenged as we sing songs like this because we go, this isn't this is what I'm doing. Or this isn't where I am. And so we're drawn back into this confidence as we approach the Lord in his word. God brings Abram along in this, right? He's doing this in Abram. And he does the same thing in you and I. That's what we've been talking about, isn't it? That, that we, we see in Christ Jesus, this, right, this scarlet thread that runs throughout the entirety of Scripture, God's redemptive plan that ultimately leads us, leads us to Christ. We see uh, uh, what this looks like practiced perfectly, don't we? And we see what it looks like to trust. Through this story and life of Abram, we, we are continuing to observe the Lord's faithfulness to, to bring Abram along. He's committed to this work in Abram. And what we've said week after week is that in addition to being committed to this work in Abram, he is committed to this work in you and I. So what do we need to understand? We need to understand this, that, that God identifies himself. Genesis 17. God reveals himself, Genesis 17, and God exerts himself. The the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus provides for you and I clarity. Clarity in what? Well, clarity in this truth, that that God works. 
and that his power can be trusted. God works and his power can be trusted. That God works for the good of his people. That God works for the glory of his name. We stake our lives on this. We stake everything that we are on this. We live our lives in light of this truth. That is where we were last week. Which leads us into part two of Genesis 17. And the question that we are going to be leaning into this morning is, is this. How does God's work... How does God's work, having shaped a confidence, verse 1, right? Where does that come from? Remember, we're working in light of what we saw last week. God identifies himself as almighty. We talked about uh, elements of what that means, what that is, and what that looks like. That instills, it gives birth, it gives way, it produces confidence. God's almightiness produces confidence in God's people directed towards him. That his ways are good, that his ways are sure, that he is committed, that he can be trusted. So the question, how does God's work, having shaped a confidence, now inspire obedience resulting from regeneration? There's three elements here, and you can't see the last one. It's cut off, uh, but it's regeneration. Regeneration. How does God's work, having shaped a confidence, inspire obedience resulting from regeneration? There is intentionality in this thought, and the order is really important. If we miss it, Okay, if we, lose, if we lose sight of this, then the danger is that we will, we will, um, we will misdiagnose okay, the source of our righteousness, which is ultimately Christ. Right? We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. Uh, this message is clear throughout uh, the biblical texts right? that our righteousness is as filthy rags. What is the source ultimately of our righteousness? It's Christ Jesus. But if we miss this, we're in danger of misdiagnosing it. It's the source of our righteousness. Strength and encouragement for life of faith. A byproduct of God's work to regenerate us. Let's say it this way. Let's say it this way. That God's people, now spiritually alive, possessing new hearts, are called by the Lord to walk in obedience. Let me say that one more time. That God's people, now spiritually alive, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Spiritually alive, possessing new hearts, are called by the Lord to walk in obedience. That's the idea. Right? This is the idea that we're seeing laid out here in, in Genesis chapter 17 as this covenant and the sign are, are extended, entered into. God's people, now spiritually Alive, possessing new hearts, are called by the Lord to walk in obedience. Well, there's, there's something that needs to be said here, isn't there? That there is a difference between this now spiritually alive and our condition prior to that, right? Do we understand this? God's people now spiritually alive. Okay, well, that means then that there is a time and a point in which we are not, right? So, so what is that saying about you and I, our natural condition and our need? Well, we go back to um, like way on the other side of this board. Right, Genesis chapter 3, and we see fall, we see sin's entrance into the world, we see this perfect environment created for God and humanity to exist in, in beautiful, intimate relationship with one another, broken. And as a result, everything is broken. We're separated from the Lord. 
Right? There's a need to be made alive. We are spiritually dead in our sin and in our rebellion. Right? We have rejected the Lord. We have sought to war against God and kill God to make ourselves God. This is kind of where we are. This is where we live. This is reality. Only we see that God is most gracious and, and faithful and he produces from dead individuals life. He gives us new hearts, hearts that beat for him and desire to live in obedience to the call of the Lord as we observe it here in Genesis chapter 17. I want to go back because I started a quote. I gave you like a sentence and then I broke it up. I just gave you a bunch of other things. So I want to go back and I want us to read it in its fullness. The omnipotence of God, his almightiness means refuge for the people of God. And when you really believe that your refuge is in the omnipotence of God Almighty, there is a joy and a freedom and a power that spills over in a life of radical obedience to Jesus Christ. This is what Abram is called to. And it begins with God's call in Genesis chapter 12. It begins with faith in Genesis chapter 15. And now this call to obedience in Genesis chapter 17. So I want us to look at, verse, at chapter 17 and I want us to go to verse 3. I'm going to add some points of emphasis as we read through. And then I want us to make a few quick observations. So let's look at, at Genesis 17 verse 3. Then Abram... Word of the Lord comes to to Abram. Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish, God says, my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings in the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. In verse 4, God articulates his covenant. He he articulates his covenant. He articulates his commitment, his aim yet again. What does he say in verse 4? Look there with me. He says, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. There's this beautiful imagery that flows throughout the biblical narrative, both no longer Jew or Greek, as well as tribes from every tribe, tongue, nation gathered before the throne of the king. There is both no distinction while at the same time being every distinction. Do you understand what I'm saying there? With this New Testament idea, Paul talks about that the, in the gospel we find this, this commonality, right? That there's no longer Jew or Greek, but that in Christ Jesus we are made, we are made one, right? Do you see that? 
At the same time, here articulated in Genesis chapter 17 is a distinction that comes out yet again in in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. That there is this similarity while at the same time being this distinction. Abraham will be what? He will be the father of a multitude of, of nations. We see every tribe, tongue gathered before the throne of the king in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. There's a beauty to this. Right, That there is this commonality, while at the same time there are distinctions, yet in all of it we find submission to the kingship of Jesus. There's a beautiful thing in that, isn't there? Right, That there is this, this connection, while there are differences and distinctions. God articulates his covenant, his commitment, and his aim. This is what it will look like, and this is the way that I will work. In verse 5, God changes Abram's name. That's interesting. God changes Abram's name, an act that correlates directly with his promise. God says this, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. In the same way that I now am making you or changing your name, calling you Abraham. It's a bit of a foreshadowing, isn't it? Hey, I'm changing your name and now I'm about to uh, unpack this, this whole new life that you are to be living in. And the fulfillment of this promise that has, has gone back over some chapters, right? But now we're seeing re-articulated and brought back to the surface as we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 17. and verse 6, God says, I will make you. So both have made you and will make you. We're seeing both of these coexist together. I will make you, God says, fruitful. I will make you into nations. There's a a past element to what God is doing here. That he says in verse 5, I have made you. There's There's a present element to what we see going on here, right? And there's a, there's a future element to what God is doing here. There's, a, there's kind of this, um, this, this I have, I am, and I will that's kind of playing itself out here, which is really, I think, a bit of a, an invitation into the nature of God that we've seen unpacked over the past two weeks, right? That he is almighty, that he possesses all knowledge, Right, that he, he, uh, he possesses this power that supersedes the powers of this world and even our ability to fully comprehend what he is doing. God says, I have made you, I, I will make you, and I, and I am making you. Abram now, right? Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you to be God to you and your offspring after you. Verse 8, And I will give to you and your offspring the land of your sojourning. And he says what? I will be their God. In verses 9 through 14, God extends a sign. You are set apart. My people are set apart. My people, God says, are distinct from the world. You're set apart, you are distinct, you're charged, and you are commissioned to display my uniqueness and holiness in creation. This is what this is about. 
Right? There's, this, there's this sign, there's this setting apart of the people of God that we're observing, beginning here in, in verse 9 through 14. Look with me at verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is uh, not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money shall surely be circumcised. There's this completeness, right? We're talking about this, this spectrum from one end to the other. The Lord is working this. So shall my covenant be, God says, in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God works. I want us to think about how God works for just a moment. We're going to use some imagery here, so hang with me. Okay, God works on a two-dimensional plane in a three-dimensional way. God works on a two-dimensional plane in a three-dimensional way. Now, this is challenging for us to grasp because, again, we live primarily on a singular plane, right? We talk about what is. It's kind of the nature of the world that we live in, isn't it? Like, what is? Tell me what is, and what is is what is. And that's kind of just all that there is, right? That's kind of like what we observe and we, and we hear. We're on a college campus. Some of you are college students, right, from uh, academia, right? You're in academic circles and... Classes, you hear, this is kind of what the world looks like. We occasionally revert back to what has been, but we are, of course, aspiring for the future. In many ways, uncertain as to what this looks like. Again, as we mentioned last week, and as we seek to understand, each time we, we read and approach uh, God's word, God works differently than this. Right? We understand things and kind of like what is and and periodically like what has been, but very rarely are we able to to really consider or, or comprehend or stake anything on what we don't know is going to happen, right? That's what we're saying here. God, however, works differently than this. God has, he, he is, and he will work in this really specific way to accomplish his purpose. Right? He, he has made Abram the father of nations. He is making him and he will make him into nations. A people that will be set apart physically, circumcision, and spiritually possessing and being possessed by the one true living almighty, Genesis 17 verse 1, God. God's people are being reminded. We are being reminded. God's people are being reminded of the, of the promise of God as final preparations are made for their entrance into the land. God is speaking here. And what is he saying? He's saying, remember. I remember that I am faithful. Remember that my word is true. Remember that you are set apart. I have a plan. We have to remember where this story finds itself over the course of human history. 
We are reading it, and if we read it solely as God speaking to Abram, then we're missing an element. We are also observing here God speaking to his people outside of the book of Genesis, outside of the book of Exodus, as they prepare to walk into this land and take possession of it. So what is God's message to this people? Well, his message is that I am trustworthy. His message is that I am faithful. His message is that I am good. How do we know this? Well, because God's people are picking this up and they're, they're reading it and they're going, yeah, I remember this. Like, yeah, this is what God said and he was doing it. He was doing it then and he said then that it was as sure then as it is in the end. Right, that he, that he had, right, that he was, and that he will. And we are able to now, on this side of things, trace his providential hand at work, bringing us to this very specific moment. Do we get this? God's people are reading this. And they're able to look back. And they're able to say, whereas Abraham is going to struggle with this, we observe that by way of his posture in just a few verses. He laughs. There's audible laughter at the plan of the Lord. And yet, as God's people are reading this, they're able to say, he did it. Like, he really did it. He developed a nation of people who found themselves in bondage and oppression, and yet he remained true. He heard our cries. He saw our affliction. He delivered us from the hand of Pharaoh. He sustained us in the wilderness despite our stiff necks. And now he brings us here. And we are preparing to walk into this land that he has spoken of. We are in need of being reminded that God is faithful. God is faithful. And God remembers. The scope of the plan of God here is, at least in Abraham's case, a bit limited. Although Abraham possesses all that he needs for regeneration, right? Confidence in God to save. However, Paul would further unpack this set-apartness in his letter to the Colossians. That's an element that we haven't really dove into very much, but I want us to certainly explore that because Paul discusses its fulfillment in Christ Jesus and what is ultimately being accomplished. It's greater than we can even begin to comprehend here in Genesis chapter 17. However, Genesis chapter 17, surely informs the way that we read the New Testament. Have you ever read through the book of Acts? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. Wonderful book. Read the book of Acts. As you read through the book of Acts, you come to this point in which you observe this circumcision party and this conflict that exists as to like where circumcision's place is in the lives of the people of God. Are you familiar with this? The tension that's there. Why is that such a big deal? Here we are. Genesis chapter 17. Right? The Old Testament informs the way that we, knew, that we understand the New Testament. Right, so as we, as we read here in Genesis chapter 17 and we see what a big deal this being set apart is and this being made distinct and being made holy is. 
in terms of God's word delivered to his people and the practice that is to follow, it makes sense for us how we would come to then the New Testament where we would go, man, no wonder this was such a challenging thing for God's people to wrap their minds around. Paul writes this, however, in Colossians 1, shining light on purpose of Genesis chapter 17. He writes this, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who what? Who raised him from the dead. There's this reflection back more immediately on the life of Christ and his submission to the plan of God that ultimately led him to the cross and the pouring out of his life as he absorbed on himself God's wrath due sin and rebellion. Our sin and rebellion, your sin and your rebellion and my sin and my rebellion. He points towards this this cutting off that has taken place. And now how through baptism we are observing what is taking place. What has happened being buried with Christ Jesus and raised to walk in newness of life. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. In verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him. Amen. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. So what do we what do we see here? Right from Genesis 17, we see that God saves. Right? That God saves and that God sets apart. That he calls his people to trust him and to live in obedience to his word, a result of regeneration. Right? A desire. That flows from being made alive. This connection with God. He says, you will be holy. right? You will be distinct. You are a part of my plan to produce nations. This is the message to Abraham. God lays this plan out for Abraham. And for his wife, Sarah. Sarai, Sarah. Who would now become... This this princess of sorts over the multitudes, over nations and kings. He says that you will have a son that against all odds, by God's power, we see the, the circumventing of this laughable circumstance. Right, that God works above, that God works outside. Abraham, when he hears this story in Genesis 17, there's just this, this laughter that results. Look at what he says. Verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? This is laughable. This is, this is unimaginable. And yet this is exactly what the Lord says that he will do. 
Genesis 17, 19, God says, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name what? Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or brought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he what? He circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him, we see this obedience resulting from regeneration and confidence. Even if there isn't this confidence in God's plan, there is this confidence in God, right? It's laughable. I'm literally audibly laughing at your plan here. And yet there is this obedience that follows. Why? Well, because God is trustworthy. God's plan is certain. And Abraham here submits himself in this really beautiful way to God's instruction. He's able to do this. Why? Well, because there's faith. Right? Faith produces this. Verse 24. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those brought with uh, money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. From Colossians 1, we see this connection flowing directly to Christ Jesus and his being cut off for his people. We observe here this practice that distinguishes God's people from the other nations. We will observe later on instruction from the Lord that will serve this same purpose, right? To distinguish the people of God from the nations of the world. And in this sweetness of the way that God's people now live their lives or seek to live their lives in obedience to the instruction of the Lord, there is this natural drawing in that is to take place. God's people living as a set-apart people. God's people living as a holy people. God's people living as a people in which all other peoples gaze upon and they go, wait a second. What's going on here? This is what we see beginning. This is what we see beginning here, right? And we don't stop. It just continues, right? It continues throughout the story. And we move out of Genesis. And we move on and we move on and we move on. And we, move, we go through all throughout the scriptures, right? And we see that there is this uniqueness to God's people. There is this set-apartness to God's people. And that it is all a result of this this regenerative work of the Lord that then produces, right, this confidence, this supernatural confidence in who he is, right? So that we turn from the ways of the world and we turn to the instruction of God and we say, yes, and we find joy in it. Are you understanding this? There's a joy that results. At the same time, we are made aware Again and again and again of our failure and our inability. You remember this, right? You remember this. This is the story. Here's God's, God's instruction. And we see that there is this desired obedience, and yet at the same time there is this continual downward spiral of sin. We're confronted with our inability, right? Through regeneration there is this desire, and yet at the same time we struggle, 
As God's people, we look towards His nature as a source of confidence in His promise that informs everything that we do. And everything that we possess, from our faith to our worship to ultimately our obedience, it's all made possible through the faithful obedience of Christ. Right? So, so here it is. Right? What is it that continues to draw us out of this? Despite the downward spiral of sin. What is it that continues to, to both break our hearts while providing us hope? Well, it's the law and it's the, it's the gospel. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Right, the, the standard. Right, how God's people are to, to live. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Right, so, so we, see our, we see our need. Right? Abraham is not altogether unfamiliar with this. Right, God's people are not unfamiliar with this. You are not unfamiliar with this and neither am I. And so where is our confidence ultimately rooted? Well, it's, it's rooted in Christ Jesus and the Father's commitment to our regeneration, to our being made alive. When we consider this fact, our faith is transformed, right? Our worship is transformed and our obedience is transformed. And so we ask in light of this question, Right? In light of the question that we began our time with this morning, how does God's work, having shaped a confidence, inspire obedience, resulting from regeneration? How do we, how do we apply this? How do we respond to this? Well, we, we trust. We sang it already. Or we trust. We, we trust God. We trust God and we trust the sufficiency of the work of Jesus to save us. We trust God and we, we trust the sufficiency of Christ to keep us. We trust God and we, and we trust the sufficiency of the work of Jesus to, to keep us and to do what is good and right even when it is beyond our comprehension. Right, even when it seems laughable. That's what we see here, isn't it? There's this, there's this trust that Abraham has. Right, there's this confidence that Abraham possesses now that inspires and, and leads to obedience, even when it would appear as though there is some question concerning the means by which God is going to accomplish all of this. Right? Tim Keller said it like this, trust is accepting what God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. Trust is accepting what God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. Does anyone have situations, circumstances that you're struggling even now to understand purpose, right? An intent. We're being called into something that is, like in and of ourselves, totally impossible. <laughs> do, you, do you feel that? It's, it's in and of ourselves, it is completely impossible. And yet the Lord is committed, right? He's committed to this, 
to this work that produces in us this confidence that leads then to our obedience, even when we don't fully understand what he is doing. We practice obedience, not begrudgingly, but joyfully, humbly, reliant on the Spirit. We embrace the blessings of the Lord, even when it comes in ways that we do not expect, and maybe even in ways that we don't want. And so here's what I want us to do as we, as we close our time. As we come to the table today, um, I think that we have a lot to consider. And so I want you to just for a moment, I want you to, I want you to close your eyes. I want us to do some considering. I think sometimes our lives are so busy that we, we fail to truly consider even when considering is encouraged, right? So let's take the next step and let's provide not only opportunity but time for consideration. I want us to, to think about this question. I want you to consider this, this question. How do the attributes of God shape the way that you live? How do, the, how do the attributes, how does who God is shape the way that you live? How, how does who God is inform the decisions that you make? And then lastly, how does who God is produce within you confidence in the way that he works? even when you don't understand it. These are the questions that we consider as we come to the table and we remember this event, right? Christ's crucifixion for the forgiveness of our sins and his resurrection back to life. This event that initially was so uh, preposterous that it served as foolishness, that it served as a stumbling block. Only God, in a way that only he can, as the Almighty One, brings about his perfect plan and his perfect will and his perfect purpose through this event, through this act. And he rescues us. Right? He rescues us. The cross is evidence that God can do this, right? That God does this. And so let's consider these things as we come to the table today.